recent years, alcohol industry front groups have mushroomed in countries all around the world. But so far, much of the history, the purpose and the origin of these so-called social aspects and public relations organizations remains in the dark. The alcohol industry is able to disguise the interference in science and policy development through these types of organizations. That is why deeper understanding of the purpose and origin of alcohol industry front groups is important. And now, a groundbreaking and unique study provides the first deeper insights. This study changes our understanding of the alcohol industry elucidating similarities and interrelationships with the tobacco industry. The researchers examined the Truth Tobacco Documents Library to gain unique insights regarding alcohol industry social aspects organizations. They analyzed content directly from industry actors themselves. This way, the researchers are now able to tell the story of how and why Big Alcohol began creating public relations front groups. Hello, from Movendi International, I'm Mike Dünnbier. Warm welcome to the Alcohol Issues podcast. This is the seventh episode of our second season. Thank you so much for tuning in. The Alcohol Issues podcast is an original production by Movendi International. It's a show about current alcohol issues of global importance. Through in-depth conversations with policymakers, community leaders and scientists, we explore alcohol policy issues, discuss landmark scientific studies and expose the alcohol industry. In this episode, I talk with Professor Jim McCambridge. The conversation with Jim provides deep insights into the evolution of social aspects and public relations organizations that operate in the interest of alcohol companies. We discuss, for example, that based on the study's findings, we should not even call these front groups social aspects organizations any longer. The alcohol industry regards the harms caused by the use of their products as a public relations issue that needs to be managed as such. So in the 1950s, the work with the tobacco industry to devise strategies to undermine policy as well as science development began. In today's conversation, Professor Jim McCambridge shares unique insights into the origins and purposes of the alcohol industry, social aspects, organizations as portrayed in internal tobacco industry documents. We discuss what the long-term public relations goals of the alcohol industry are, and we dive into three major developmental periods in the evolution of alcohol industry, social aspects, organizations to discuss which threats the alcohol industry felt they needed to respond to and which strategies they developed and deployed. We recorded our conversation on November 15th, 2021, just a few days before this unique study was published. Jim McCambridge holds the chair in Addictive Behaviors and Public Health at the University of York. Jim is also visiting professor at Linköping University in Sweden and conjoint professor at the University of Newcastle in Australia. 
Jim now holds a Wellcome Trust Investigator Award in Humanities and Social Science to advance the study of the alcohol industry, public health sciences and policy. This supports one of two five-year research programs that Jim leads. Jim first trained in sociology, then in social work and went on to work with drug users. His PhD study at the National Addiction Center at the Institute of Psychiatry was a randomized controlled trial of motivational interviewing for drug prevention among young people. Jim's scientific work is dedicated to policy-related research that seeks to develop our understanding of the roles the alcohol industry plays in national and international policy-making contexts. In our conversation, we discuss the objectives and methodology of the study entitled The Origins and Purposes of Alcohol Industry Social Aspects Organizations Insights from the Tobacco Industry Documents. We talk about two major questions. What is the strategic purpose of the so-called SEPROs for the alcohol industry? Why do they spend considerable amounts on those SEPROs? And secondly, which major developmental periods in the evolution of alcohol industry social aspects organizations can be identified and what do we learn from them? In the study, Jim and colleagues show that the alcohol industry identified the developing population level understanding of alcohol problems in the 1980s as existential threat. This is a remarkable finding in itself and so we discuss the issue in depth. There is another remarkable thought in the study and I quote, it is challenging to contemplate just how profoundly the alcohol industry may have biased what we think we know about alcohol, end quote. So I ask uh, Jim about this uh, quotation and we talk about what it means and of course what the lessons for today's work are. Welcome to the Alcohol Issues podcast. Here we are with uh, Jim McCambridge. Jim, very welcome and thank you so much for uh, taking the time to discuss your brand new study with us today. It's a pleasure. And let me just tell the listeners, the study is called The Origins and Purposes of Alcohol Industry Social Aspects Organizations, Insights from the Tobacco Industry Documents. And it's actually out very freshly so it's a great opportunity to discuss this uh, with you and bring more attention uh, i think to this very novel uh, study so jim if you could start us off what's the objective of the study and and why does it matter okay well alcohol industry social aspects organizations have been um, somewhat perplexing for both public health interests and policymakers in other fields, in that these organisations make claims to be acting in the public interest and seeking to be reducing alcohol harms, whilst at the same time opposing the implementation of known effective policy measures such as increasing price or reducing availability. So this is quite a paradoxical state of affairs and one which has been quite difficult to know how to respond to. 
And therefore, the motivation for this study was to discover if there was any information within the tobacco industry documents library that shed light on the motivations underlying these organizations and we thought that if we were able to trace back in time their origins there may be informative material there i have to say what for me it's uh, surprising that i read about the truth tobacco documents library and um, before i ask you what that actually is what is the assumption that uh, you as a researcher found you can find information about alcohol industry lobby activity and the setup of these organizations in documents that are from the tobacco industry? So where does this approach come from? Yes, well, we had been aware previously um by virtue of studies done by other researchers, that there was cross-ownership between the alcohol and tobacco industries. So you have examples throughout the decades where alcohol companies own tobacco companies and vice versa. Perhaps the best known example of this is uh, Philip Morris's ownership of the Miller Brewing Company within the US. And so... What is then the Truth Tobacco Documents Library? And in the bigger context, how did you conduct uh, your study based on these documents? Okay, this library was constructed following litigation in the United States, which mandated the disclosure of internal company documents and other information that was not designed to be released into the public domain. And it was agreed as part of what was known as the Master Settlement Agreement that um, further litigation against the tobacco com companies for the harm caused by their products would be ended in uh, exchange for a number of things, including the release of this information into the public into the public domain. So this is a website that exists, that is publicly accessible, that has been used by tobacco researchers to generate more than a thousand studies, which really reveal the inner workings of tobacco companies and how they acted to advance their own interests by frustrating public policy. Now, as an alcohol researcher, it seemed to me that it might, may be possible to discover similarly useful information within this library as had been done for tobacco. And so based on, on this assumption, um, how did you approach uh, the study then? What's the method you were using? Okay, so there are documentary uh, research methods that have been developed uh, over some decades now that uh, allow one to search indexed material within these libraries using carefully selected keywords. And then once search strategies are constructed to identify the main objects of interest, there's then a process of snowballing from an, an, an 
an initial set of documents identified that seem you know more promising in some instances and less pr promising in other instances and so you follow up the promising leads by conducting further searches until you have established whether or not the information being sought does in fact exist within the, within this library so we uh, undertook this study, um, that is Jack Gary, who works with me in York, and Robin Room, who, as you may know, was based in Australia and became involved partly because he was one of the researchers that were we identified in early searches that, that were identified uh, by alcohol, alcohol companies as, being, as doing work that was injurious to their interests. And you mentioned, I thought that was interesting, Jim, that um, this publicly available data on this uh, website has been used by tobacco uh, researchers for really a huge number of studies, as you said, to expose uh, the inner workings of the tobacco industry. Has this been done? Has this data set been used for the alcohol industry before? Or are you and, and Robin the first ones to dive into this? Well, there have been some preliminary studies that have been undertaken in recent years which identify, if you like, the most easily accessible information. Now, what's happened uh, as information technologies have developed is that the indexing of the material and the the search, the ability to undertake much more advanced searches has developed over time. Mm -hmm. So what we've done is we've taken the most recent years for which there were data available, which is which is largely the 1980s, and then we're, we're backwards in time and so we've covered earlier decades that have not previously been investigated in relation to alcohol yeah and now it, it's of course interesting to discuss what it is that you discovered and i'm looking here again at uh, the title of the study the origins and purposes of alcohol industry social aspects organizations so um what is it what kind of insights get, did the tobacco industry documents give you where are the origins what are the purposes that you could identify or did a story emerge that, that you can tell us yes um so in the paper that is about to be published we've identified three key episodes within this set of documents that are Uh, enlightening about the formation and the purposes of these types of organizations. The first episode begins way back in the 1950s, in the early 1950s, but actually that's not the beginning of this story. Uh, the mm -hmm. beginning of this story lies in earlier decades, in the 1930s and 1940s, as the, uh, as the alcohol industry came out of US national prohibition and tried to figure out what it could do to protect itself from uh, from attention which was concerned about the social impacts and the health impacts of alcohol consumption and the, in particular spirits now within the tobacco documents we found that Hill and Knowlton, which was a public relations company headquartered in New York, which had long been known to be 
instrumental in the original development of the tobacco industry scientific programs in the early 1950s, had in fact been already consulting with the US spirits industry. And during that decade, during the 1950s, the uh, Helen Knowlton worked with both the spirits industry in the US and the tobacco and the tobacco companies there to construct public relations programs which at their heart had the funding of scientific research as a vehicle to influence public opinion on the harms that were associated with both tobacco and and alcohol and so we were quite surprised to discover that what is widely known as the tobacco playbook was in fact at least partly written by this public relations company and also the alcohol industry who had uh, who they had been working with prior to the tobacco industry uh, we found that uh, the public relations objectives for tobacco and alcohol were very, very similar, and the operating models of the organizations formed were almost identical. And this information about the origins of these organizations is really important because it shows uh, it, it shows quite a bit of information about the not only the original purposes of these organizations, but as one follows them throughout the decades, uh, one begins to see that these purposes are largely intact over time uh, and, and that it's possible to discover the contemporary purposes and functions and value to industry actors today as lying in decisions that were made many, many decades ago. So that is the first period. And as you explained, everything started with uh, the alcohol industry coming out of uh, prohibition, prohibition, trying to avoid a situation where they attract uh, regulatory attention. And then in the 1950s, they developed this uh, playbook with the Uh, tobacco industry and this PR company that, that works for both harmful industries. And what's the next period, the next uh, part of the story that you uncovered? Well, uh, I should say that this is not a definitive history mm. of these organizations. We are assembling fragments of evidence and constructing a narrative, testing the evidence to see how far we can be confident in the claims that we can make about the data. So it may well be that there are other episodes that are important to a fuller understanding of how these organizations have developed. And with that caveat, caveat in mind, I should say that one of the clear continuities of our time was a concerted attempt on the part of industry actors to locate the causes of alcohol problems as lying in the people who drank spirits rather than in the products themselves or the, or the producers. So following on from the developments in the 1950s, we identified a key figure, and that was a man known as Samuel D. Chilcott. He was someone who worked for the spirits industry, for a trade association in the spirits industry in the US. And he um, 
became a leading figure within the uh, w- within uh, the U.S. Uh, spirits industry. He saw that during the 1970s there were various attempts to initiate uh, warning labels on spirits containers uh, within that country. And he also saw that they would, uh, would be applied to other types of products, beer and wine. So he um, set up an organization which brought together spirits, wine and beer interests into an organization called the Beverage Alcohol Information Council. So th- this was the first attempt to bring together the three sections of what had been a uh, a more separated set of interests previously with the specific objective of delaying or defeating public policy. In, the, in this instance, the, the application of warning labels on, on bottles. Now, that was successful. Uh, the Beverage Alcohol Information Council delayed uh, warning labels uh, for almost 10 years. And that success was noted by the tobacco industry. So Samuel D. Chilcott was recruited by the Tobacco Institute, which was the main organ of the tobacco companies in monitoring and intervening in public policy and research issues internationally. And he, uh, as well as uh, developing these alliances within the alcohol industry that were seen as being valuable to the tobacco industry. He, he was also a leading figure in the development of what was at the time uh, thought to be public service advertising. So this was the, you know, this is a situation in which the spirits industry seized opportunities to communicate about the harms of uh, uh, alcohol products and to be, uh, espousing pro-health and the harm reduction type messages but this was really done in a way in which it was possible for the industry to articulate their preferred framings of the issues and to get across uh, public relations messages that they wanted to be uh, received by the industry, both about the nature of the problems caused by alcohol and about the nature of the industries itself. So the 1970s were a key period in bringing together the different sectors of the alcohol industry in the United States. And on this uh, conversation about um, the preferred framing of uh, the issues, um, I thought it's interesting that uh, they set up the Beverage Alcohol Information Information Council. That sounds very much like um, an objective uh, entity that wants to inform about beverage alcohol. But what are the, the, the big framing issues that favor an alcohol industry narrative um, that you could identify? Well, in the 1970s, just as in the 1950s, and just as today, the same key messages are seen, presented in slightly different forms and in, in different contexts. Uh, among the key framings are claims to be acting in the public interest and to be uh, making efforts to be reducing health harms and other harms caused by alcohol. 
Then along with that, a blaming of heavy consumers as being the source of alcohol problems and, and deflecting attention away from the products and their producers. Again, um, consistently throughout time is opposing effective policy measures such as restrictions on availability and increases in price. And in, in opposing effective policy measures, what we see instead is an articulation, articulation of entirely reasonable sounding ideas such as education and awareness raising, but being promoted in a very particular way as alternatives to effective policies and not as adjuncts to them. And in all of this, there is an effort to access uh, policy-making institutions and influence policy-making institutions in order to prevent non-effective measures being uh, adopted. And all of this is done despite the claims being made about acting in the public interest. All of this is done uh, as a means of advancing what are essentially business interests, private interests, uh, and showing little regard for for consumers or other people affected by alcohol harms. I think um, all these um, industry framings that you have listed here now, I think they all uh, merit a deeper discussion, but this kind of blaming the individual user, locating the problem within the consumer and not within the product. Uh, I think that seems to be really pervasive. And um, uh, I, I mean, we struggle with this today. We have this responsible use or responsible drinking that the alcohol industry is using now. And to understand that this comes from back in the day, so to say, from the 1970s or even earlier, uh, how strategic they have worked with really shaping our understanding. Uh, that stood out to me when, when I was reading uh, your paper now. And so then we understand the period, the second period, and what is then the third one that you have identified? Okay, so in the 1970s, it was a identified that there was a common interest across the alcohol industry in defeating alcohol policies. Uh, but what was not determined in the 1970s, uh, beyond the formation of the Beverage Alcohol Information Council, uh, was the organizational form that might be adopted across the world in defending alcohol industry interests. And this really, consciousness of this is a problem that needed a response developed throughout the, 19, throughout the 1980s, and not only in the US, but across the world. And I should say one of the limitations of our data set is that the documents that we had access to are largely US-based documents. They nonetheless contain information from US actors who were globally influential, mm -hmm. uh, in particular uh, in the spirits industry. So what we found in the 1980s was that uh, trade associations, particularly in the spirits sector, became aware that the scientific literature was developing uh, and pointing inexorably towards um, 
uh, an understanding that if you were going to reduce alcohol harms within society, it was necessary to reduce the overall level of alcohol consumption within a given society. Now, for uh, the spirits industry, as for other uh, sectors of the alcohol industry, this was regarded as an ex existential threat. So this population level understanding of alcohol problems, the need to reduce overall drinking within the population, this um, obviously posed a threat directly to all three sectors, beer, wine and spirits. And then, you know, the possibility of an organized response had been identified towards the end of the 1970s in the US. And in making the case internationally within, uh, within the spirit sector, one of the key figures, a man called Paul Gavahan, said, if the control of alcohol availability agenda becomes worldwide public policy, there will be no industry as we know it. It makes sense to unite on positions opposing the coordinated worldwide anti-lobby on key alcohol health issues. So here is an example of the industry recognizing and that there were common interests across all three sections of the industry that required organization. So then you had, uh, in addition to the efforts of trade associations to think through these issues, you had the leading companies themselves becoming concerned with exactly these same issues. And in, um, in Britain, um, a key figure was a man called Peter Mitchell, uh, who uh, worked for Guinness, uh, now Diageo, and he developed, uh, along with colleagues in other major companies, uh, a model uh, that you know was uh, an embryonic form of the social, social aspects organisations that we know today. Uh, that was very, very carefully designed to to promote the public relations messages, both to government and to the public, that the alcohol industry wanted to use to influence the adoption of alcohol policies. And right from the beginning of this effort in Britain, the intention was that what became the Portman Group would be a prototype for an organ of an organization that would be replicated in other countries. So again, in, in a document not designed for public consumption, Peter Mitchell said, Britain became the focus for the first major initiative. Uh, what those of us in the industry concerned with a global strategy needed to prove was that the concept could work elsewhere we needed to show that the idea of an organization similar to the Portman Group, but tailored to local market circumstances, could have wide application. So the, the conclusion reached by the, the, the leading companies and trade associations was that the Portman Group model was successful and would be replicated globally so that today organizations of this type have proliferated uh, so that we see this global network of organizations you know whose uh, you know whose first version was the portman group being designed 
to be the organizational expression of these long, longer term public relations goals that had been articulated since the early 1950s. And, uh, you know, this mission or this cause is is designed to directly undermine scientific and public understanding of alcohol and how alcohol contributes adversely to public health. And we have already, I think, uh, talked a little bit about the public understanding with this example of locating the problem within the consumer. Today, we have this uh, responsible drinking concept. You have already also mentioned this example of the delay tactic to um, the, the, to delay the uh, warning label um, by the um, Beverage Alcohol Information Council in the 1970s. Can you dive a little bit more into how have these early social aspects and public relations organizations uh, worked to start shaping science and the research agenda or the issues that come out of science um, as they become more and more concerned about this population level understanding of alcohol consumption and harm? Well, this goes right back to the early 1950s again. So when Helen Knowlton were working more um, energetically for the tobacco companies, they constructed something that was known as the Frank Statement. This was a, a public information campaign which invited the um, you know, the public in the US to judge the sincerity of the tobacco companies by how um, how concerned they were to, to discover the cause of the of the harms that tobacco did to health by investment in in funding science and we later discovered that you know that the funding of science was a strategic device designed to do the opposite of what it was claimed now just as with tobacco the same was true for alcohol so the uh, um, via um, the U.S. spirits industry, alcohol research was funded from the 1950s onwards, uh, typically targeting um, major universities with medical schools, including elite medical schools in the U.S. Um, and uh, grants were awarded partly as a device for building relationships with scientists in the tobacco industry in particular knew that they were going to end up in litigation and needed to have expert witnesses in courtroom situations so there were various various purposes being served by the recruitment wow. of scientists and yeah. um, for the alcohol industry it's not so clear that litigation was an early concern It certainly did become a concern later on. Uh, but what we see in relation to alcohol is an extensive campaign funding hundreds of st studies uh, into uh, from the 1950s into the 60s and 70s and onwards. And the, the cumulative effect of these studies is unclear. So we know that the... The alcohol evidence base will have been compromised to some extent by this funding, but we don't really know, uh, as the studies are only now beginning to be done, 
what damage that has done to the scientific understanding of alcohol and the harms it causes. Uh, and we don't know what damage it has also done to deflecting public policy away from adopting uh, known effective policy measures. So that really is uh, one of the key implications of the study that has been done in that there is a need to unravel how far alcohol industry funding of science has undermined the integrity of the existing evidence base. Yeah, and I think we'll get back to to this point because I think there is a very interesting uh, quote, or for me it's a quote um, in your study, but I want to stay just a little bit longer with uh, the link between the alcohol industry and the tobacco industry that you show very illustratively in in your study existing, so to say, from the beginning. I, I Jim, I liked what you said earlier that the alcohol industry was basically part of developing the tobacco industry playbook there through the PR firm that they both used. And in the study, um, I read this uh, quote that, that I want to read here. Facing the existential threat posed by the developing population level understanding of alcohol problems in the 1980s, national and international trade associations collaborated with the tobacco industry in various ways. So, as we have said, as we have heard from you, the alcohol industry collaborated with the tobacco industry strategically over decades. Can you summarize why they did it? Why is this um, important for the alcohol industry uh, to do? So both industries see the threats to their business interests arising from public policy as being essentially similar. So if one is concerned with um, protecting public health, um, the kinds of measures which evidence shows are effective are the same for tobacco and alcohol. So measures such as increasing price, reducing availability, restricting marketing. So there is a common cause to be served. Now, the fact that they have interests in common does not explain by itself um, how they have worked together. So you need more specific evidence of how they have worked together to... Yeah. Um, and and we we identified some evidence of that kind in the uh, in the tobacco company documents and the the individual that I mentioned earlier Samuel D Chilcott is a key figure in linking the tobacco and alcohol uh, industries during the nineteen eighties so he was previously the um, a leading executive in Discus, the United States uh, Spirits Trade Association. After he moved to the Tobacco Institute, he remained in contact with his former colleagues in Discus. Uh, they collaborated in various ways and over very uh, and on various issues. Both always shaped by a consideration that there were shared interests. So um, Samuel Chilcott himself believed that he was recruited by t tobacco because the work that he had done for alcohol showed that he was capable of exactly the sorts of um, uh, activities that would be useful to tobacco. 
So we see in the 1980s a secret monitoring of WHO, for example, that was being conducted by both the tobacco and alcohol industries and information about uh, the activities of WHO was being shared between the two. Now, Samuel Chilcott was not the only way, not the only connection between the tobacco and alcohol industries during the 1980s, but he certainly was a key one. And, uh, you know, in, in other studies that we've done and are currently continuing to do, we see all sorts of connections with the, between the tobacco and alcohol industries. As I read the study and I'm listening to you now, I'm also thinking that I... This didn't occur to me before. Um, today, the tobacco industry is much better regulated compared to the alcohol industry. There is even on the global level, the Framework Convention on Tobacco Control, a binding um, global treaty, which we don't have for, for alcohol on the global level. But what I realized is coming out of uh, the prohibition era, as you uh, talked about earlier in the 1950s, um, especially in the United States, it was actually the alcohol industry that was much better regulated um, with the control state system and these retail monopolies and the three tiers uh, that there are in the United States. So can I understand the whole collaboration also in the sense that early on through working with the PR company Hell and Norton, the, the tobacco industry actually needed to learn from the alcohol industry early on today, it's maybe reversed, but is that, uh, could that be an interpretation and understanding that is uh, feasible, plausible? Yes. Um, so on the basis of the documents that we've analyzed within this study, it is, you know, we, we know that the Helen Knowlton were already working with the spirits industry. So we, we have not been able to identify how far the recommendations that Helen Alton subsequently made to the tobacco companies originated from the U.S. spirits industry or were the product of Helen Alton's own work. Um, we're continuing to do work in that area and we want to better understand mm -hmm. uh, who... Uh, was more responsible for the original authorship of the, you know, what became known as the Tobacco Playbook. Um, so the, the relationship between the tobacco and alcohol industries, I think, is a really complex to unpick over time. It needs very careful historical study. But one thing that I think that I think can be said with absolute clarity is that these two industries have seen their interests as being similar or the same down the decades and have been ready and willing to collaborate at key moments when their interests are threatened. And certainly in the 1980s, when the alcohol industry saw its interests being threatened, it was ready to ally itself with the tobacco industry. And, you know, it would be unsurprising if you know, at other moments in time, if the tobacco industry had similarly uh, sought the assistance of the alcohol industry. Yeah. And as I said, you already uh, talked a little bit about it, Jim, but there's another striking um, uh, quote for me in the study. 
And it's this, I quote, it is challenging to contemplate just how profoundly the alcohol industry may have biased what we think we know about alcohol. Could you explain a little bit more in a little bit more detail? What is it that you mean by this? Well, there, there are two um, ways of thinking about how the alcohol evidence base may have been undermined. The first is that it's possible to identify issues that are of obvious strategic importance to the alcohol industry that are likely to have been addressed in the decision-making about research funding. So anything to do with taxation or advertising or other aspects of public policy or indeed the harms that alcohol causes uh, and the extent to which alcohol is harmful to public health or society. These are all areas in which um, the evidence base is likely to have been undermined by alcohol industry funding. Now, alongside these, um, if you like, more obvious issues, there are also another set of issues that are likely to have been affected by alcohol industry attention. So just to give one example, um, it had already been established in um, prior historical research some decades ago that the alcohol industry so it had a convergence of interest with the alcoholism movement so that you know in both cases the cause of alcohol problems was seen as lying within the individual so the ways in which the construct of alcoholism has exerted a profound influence on the development of the science of alcohol problems is is likely to have been at least in part influenced by the ways in which the alcohol industry have funded science. Now, as, as I mentioned earlier, uh, I should make comments carefully about this subject because this is important to study much more carefully than has been done to date within this preliminary study of the, uh, of the extent to which the evidence base has been undermined. And I think it's, um, I mean, I take your caveat um, really seriously, and I think it's uh, important also to grant science uh, this space to actually look at the documents. As you said, they are so many, and uh, it's also difficult to actually go deep into them and, and analyze them. Uh, so I think uh, your point is well taken there. I think what we can take with us is that what we know today and how we speak about alcohol, alcohol harm, and as you were saying, alcohol policy solutions um, also merits careful consideration of where this knowledge uh, or knowledge in quotation mark, marks actually comes from. So I think that's, uh, that's an important point just uh, for us also to be aware of the discourse, where it's shaped, how it's shaped, and who might benefit from, from this as we wait for more um, studies in, into this. I think, I hope that your study paves the way for this um, going forward. So I have uh, one final question. Of course, it's also a big topic, so it's a final question, but could be a long conversation, Jim. And that is, 
what is it that can be done with this understanding that your study adds to? And I noticed um, you uh, make the comment that we maybe shouldn't even use the term SAPRO, so S-A-P-R-O-S, so social aspects and public relations organizations. So let's start there. What is your thinking there? What should be dropped or how? what's the accurate term to describe these industry front groups or industry funded organizations accurately? On the basis of this study, we think it, it might be actually unhelpful to regard social aspects organizations as in any way performing uh, social functions, pro-social functions. Um, and just using that term may unwittingly buy into the industry idea. Uh, so, you know, it may be that, you know, the term social aspects public relations organization has been adopted as a way of showing that, you know, although there's claims being made about social aspects, actually the, this is a public relations uh, enterprise. On the basis of this study, we wonder whether, it, you know, it's, it's just simpler and um, more helpful to people to regard these as alcohol industry public relations organi organizations. That's what they do, despite claims to the contrary, to be claims to be acting in the public interest. It seems uh, clear that um, private interests are being served, business interests are being advanced. And, you know, it's it's perfectly proper for businesses to indulge in public relations activities. It should be recognised as such. Within um, public health policy making, then I think there is an important implication. And that is if these organisations are acting in business interests, that should be recognised as such. And there should be stringent um, methods used to manage the conflicts of interest arising. So as with the tobacco companies, you know, it's difficult to imagine that there is a legitimate role in the formulation of alcohol policies to be um, performed by such organisations. You know, it may be better that they should be entirely excluded from policy making. And, you know, if in certain circumstances, for example, to do with policy impl implementation, there is seen to be a role, then that needs that, that work needs to be done incredibly carefully. Uh, and you know, one of the one of the issues that, that that we face in thinking through the implications of this study is that society regards the tobacco industry very differently than it regards the alcohol industry. So with WHO, for example, you have this, you know, wonderful achievement that is the Framework Convention on, on Tobacco Control, which prevents tobacco interests from interfering with public health policy making, and there is no equivalent for the alcohol industry. In fact, what, what you see in WHO's activities um increasingly over time is that a you know a line is drawn to exclude the tobacco industry and uh, to include other private sector uh, interests in engagements with both WHO and national and national governments uh, 
And that, that, that'll, in the context of the findings of this paper, that's obviously a very problematic state of affairs, uh, and one that you know, one that I, I hope the uh, relationship between the tobacco and alcohol industries is one of the key messages that um, arises from this paper and the need to advance thinking about how the alcohol industry should be managed uh, uh, in relation to public policy. Yeah, and I think this is already a great summary for our conversation today. I think bringing together uh, the relationships uh, since the 1950s that you could uh, show in the study um, the impact that that has had obviously on uh, some um, uh, policy advancement or delaying policy advancement or as we also discussed today the impact on public recognition of alcohol harms and the effects of alcohol policy solutions or lack thereof and I think lastly also what you mentioned is very important that we as the public, we regard the alcohol industry as very different still compared to the tobacco industry. And these industries, they don't seem to do that. So as you said, on, on key moments, they act uh, jointly on um, shared interest or identical interest. And uh, we can certainly see this. I wrote a blog post earlier this year about uh, the WHO consultation process about uh, developing the Global Alcohol Action Plan and a network of tobacco industry think tanks was mobilized to actually, I think, 30, 40 tobacco industry think tanks from around the world contributed to this uh, WHO alcohol policy formulation process. So I think uh, these things that your study has shown now for the past, we can still see them play out here today. and. Um, so I think you have summarized this well. Um, thank you so much, Jim, for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. I really appreciate you taking the time and I look forward to more studies that build on the work that you have done uh, with this uh, brand new study. Thanks to Professor Jim McCambridge for taking the time to talk in depth about the origins and purposes of alcohol industry public relations front groups and how they evolved with the help of Big Tobacco. This podcast episode is part of Movendi International's work to raise awareness about the unethical practices of the alcohol industry and how to advance public health-oriented alcohol policy solutions. In the show notes, we share resources regarding the topics we addressed in the conversation including other studies referenced in my conversation with Jim. It is great to hear from listeners and to receive feedback about what you think about the topics and episodes. If you like our work with the Alcohol Issues podcast, please subscribe, rate our show and spread the word so that more people can find this pod. Your feedback, questions and suggestions for future topics and guests is most welcome. Please get in touch at mike.dunbier at movendi.ngo. And you can also reach me on Twitter and find my contact details in the show notes. The Alcohol Issues podcast is made by Arin Pino, Taraka Ranchigoda and Kristina Sperkova. 
That's it for the Alcohol Issues podcast this week. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you so much for tuning in and now stay well and safe and talk to you soon.